Please be aware that this episode contains descriptions of terrorism and personal injury. John wasn't home when I thought I should be home. I had the TV on and I went to take a shower. And when I was coming out, I heard something about an accident at a coal mine. I'm thinking, hmm, wonder if that was his coal mine. Well, then the state police called and said there was an incident. He didn't say what incident, he just said there was an incident at the mine. In the evening of Wednesday, July 25th, 2002, about 300 feet deep below the fields of Somerset County, Pennsylvania, a phone is ringing. The phone is part of the internal communication system at Q Creek Coal Mine, where 18 men are working at the time. Miner Ron Shad, head of a team of nine, who worked at a section called Mains, eventually hears the call through the din of heavy machinery. Picking it up, he's met with the voice of Miner Dennis Hall, one of the other nine men who work a section called First Left, about three quarters of a mile away. His instructions are loud and clear. There's water on the way, get out now. Ron hangs up the phone and yells to his team in Mains to evacuate immediately, then races ahead to see what's happening. The Mains team now moves steadily through the four-foot-high tunnels with just their headlamps to guide the way, wondering what the fuss is about. Then they see it. At the junction where Mains and First Left meet, a churning vortex of water is completely blocking their exit. Thinking quickly, the men hurry into a nearby ventilation shaft, relieved to find it has yet to fill up with water. With the mine entrance well over a mile away, the men have no choice but to crawl on their hands and knees as the water races up behind them and up over their necks. Having finally got ahead of it, it is just before 9 p.m. when the mains team arrive at the mine entrance and emerge into the fresh, open air. And there they wait, hoping beyond hope for any sign of their nine other colleagues from first left. But the men don't appear. So begins one of the most incredible rescue efforts the U.S. mining industry has ever known. And to me, it's also a story of how, in the face of real adversity, a community can put all differences aside and come together to focus on one thing and one thing only, saving lives. Even when it was almost inconceivable that the men were still alive, they dared to hope. But hope is not a finite commodity. And as long as somewhere, its fire still burns, there's always a chance. I'm Donnie Dust, United States Marine Corps veteran and world-renowned survival expert. This is Rescue. Today's episode, One Summer's Day. The word Q Creek comes from the Native American, Q Mahoning, which gives its name to a local river. 
The area known as Kew Creek is located about four miles north of Somerset in Somerset County. With small mining communities having existed there as far back as 1918, a number of mines had opened and closed in the area before a Kew Creek mine became operational in 2000. Sue Unger grew up in Somerset County. Her husband, John, was a miner and worked at Kew Creek. Oh boy. When he first went into the mine, I figured he'd only be there for five years because he's an outdoorsy person. And working in a coal mine is miles and miles underground, no windows, dark, dirty. I really didn't know what else they did in mine because I didn't want to know. Then I'd be worried about how dangerous it would be. So I knew he went to work and he came home. Somerset County was no stranger to tragedy. Less than a year before, the region became the focus of international attention when on September 11, 2001, United Airlines Flight 93 crashed in a field just 10 miles from the entrance to Kew Creek Mine. In the aftermath, the people of Somerset opened their homes and offered food to the emergency services personnel and any relatives of the deceased who felt the need to come down to the site. It forged the bond between the surviving families of the passengers and the local community, which remains to this day. Well, it was pretty close to where we live. In fact, John was underground on that day. They could see the smoke and everything from where the plane went down. When it was discovered that the plane had crashed after passengers fought back against the hijackers, it brought a renewed sense of national pride to the local area and reinvigorated their sense of community. Little did they know how much they would need it only a few months later. I grew up in Allegheny County in the state of Pennsylvania. In my younger days, your father in that area at that time either worked in the coal mines or worked in the steel mills. This is Joseph Spafoni. Back in 2002, Joe was the bituminous mine chief in the Pennsylvania Bureau of Deep Mine Safety. Bituminous is a type of coal that is most prominent in the Pennsylvania region, the kind of coal that was mined at Hugh Creek. Joe came from a family of miners, and soon after graduating from Penn State, he too joined the business, working for Republic Steel. After 15 years underground, he worked his way up the ranks, gravitating towards a career in mine safety, something he felt he'd been born to do. I always had a niche for, for mine safety. My mother's father, my grandfather, was killed in the coal mine. He was electrocuted. Uh, he was only 30-some years old. My other grandfather... He ended up dying from black lungs. In time, Joe eventually found his way to the Bureau of Deep Mine Safety. Among their many responsibilities was coordinating all mining rescues in the state. The bottom line was if something happened somewhere, you had to be able to respond and deal with the situation. On the Wednesday night when the flood happened at Kew Creek Mine, a then 51-year-old Joe is at home in Fayette County when he receives a frantic phone call. I was at home getting ready to go to sleep. 
actually drinking a cup of tea at the kitchen table when the phone rang and received a call from my supervisor who had told me that the Q Creek mine had breached into another mine and it was flooding with water. Joe's informed that although nine men have managed to escape, another nine are still unaccounted for. It's his responsibility to see if anything could be done to help them. Yeah, whenever you get hit with that, uh, it gets your attention in a hurry. I told my wife to pack me a bag. I'm going to be gone probably for a few days. Down at the Q Creek Mine Office, about a half a mile from the entrance, it is quickly established that the missing miners from first left have breached into an old mine named the Saxman Coal and Coke Mine. Going by the maps they were using, it should have been 300 feet away. But the maps are wrong. Saxman first opened in the 1920s and was eventually abandoned sometime in the early 60s. It had since filled up with a quarter of a billion gallons of stagnant water, far more than the Q Creek mine could hold. Joe is stunned. The fact that I knew the old mine was much bigger than the Q Creek mine was, there was a good chance we were gonna fill the entire mine up with water. And so it was a dire situation when we left to go up there. John wasn't home when I thought I should be home. I had the TV on and I went to take a shower. And when I was coming out, I heard something about an accident at a coal mine. I'm thinking, hmm, wonder if that was his coal mine. Well, then, you know, he didn't come home and I was kind of waiting in the living room and then the the state police called and said there was an incident at the mine. He didn't say what incident, he just said there was an incident at the mine and we would like all the family to meet at the Sipesville Fire Hall. The missing nine miners are team leader Randy Fogel, Harry Mayhew, Tom Foy, John Philippi, Ronald Hillman, Dennis Hall, Robert Pugh, Mark Popperdeck, and Sue's husband, John Unger. Though many of their loved ones wanted to go down to the mine, local police instruct them to go to the Sipesville Fire Hall, about a mile north. I said, okay, well, 11.30 at night, I can't, you know, I just took myself, I just drove up myself. It is approaching 1 a.m. when Joe arrives at the Q Creek Mine Office where he is immediately introduced to the mine's owner, Dave Roebuck, and the nine men who did manage to make it out. They were very concerned about their fellow miners, the other nine miners. They explained how hard it was for them to get out, fighting against the water and so forth. You know, I think in their minds, they thought maybe their fellow miners weren't gonna make it. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Water has been gushing into Q Creek Mine for almost five hours. Soon, it will be completely filled from floor to ceiling. Joe knows that if anyone is still alive down there, they are likely to be stuck inside the first left channel where they were working. In order to survive, they would have had to have made it to the highest point in the channel. If a rescue team could somehow pump the water out quickly enough, they might just have enough time to drill a hole in the shaft, through which they could extract any survivors using a rescue capsule. But first, they need to find that precise location on the surface and establish if anyone is actually still alive. A short time later, a mile from the mine's entrance, dairy farmer Bill Arnold is just getting ready for bed after a grueling 16-hour day of baling hay when his dog starts barking. I knew there was something dramatically wrong. Seeing men waving flashlights about on his property, Bill thinks someone is trying to break into his barn. He grabs his gun and heads out into his pickup truck, only to find one of the men is mine engineer, Sean Isgin, who he knows well. I wound the window down and I said, Sean, what's going on? And I'll never forget his words to me. They struck me like a knife. He said, Billy, there's been an accident in the mine. Nine guys are missing. And we think they're trapped under your farm. And uh, I simply shut the truck off and jumped out and said, what can we do to help? At the fire hall, Sue arrives to find a desperate scene. There's a lot of people there and I'm thinking, oh, this doesn't look so good. So we got in and there was a spokesman. He was a minister in the Somerset area. He kind of explained what they knew which they didn't know a whole lot because there was no communication with the miners. I knew pretty quickly that it was pretty severe. Back on Bill Arnold's farm, after they identified the best spot to start digging, a drill rig is set up. The plan is to drill a six inch wide hole straight down to the highest point in the mine's first left channel. If it isn't entirely flooded, they will try to make contact with any survivors. At just after 3 a.m., the drilling begins. The sense of urgency was very real. I can remember the driller was pushing so intensely, putting so much pressure on the drill that he was literally lifting the drill rig off of the stabilizing blocks. Ordinarily, it would have taken around six hours to drill through the mine shaft. That morning, they manage it in two. Much to the relief of everyone present, when they punch through, they hit air. The mine hasn't yet completely filled with water. Then, through the noise of the compression pump powering the drill, Joe hears something. When we punched through into the mine, I could have swore I heard something. So I asked the driller, I said, 
did you hear something? He said, I thought I did. But I think I pulled the drill still back up into the roof. It's only four foot high. And I told him, I says, go ahead, put that drill still at the back down on the bottom, pick it up one foot, and shut your compressor off. An eerie silence descends over the site as the drill powers down and everyone strains to listen. Someone is banging on the drill from deep underground. I can tell you the hair stood on the back of my neck like it never has before or since. It was absolutely wonderful and terrifying at the same moment, knowing that there were men alive, but also knowing that they were trapped and could be clinging to the last few minutes of life. So that was a plus. You know, now we know at least somebody's alive down there. The incredible news spreads quickly to the families at Sipesville Fire Hall. Everyone was shouting and yelling and clapping, and they were just very encouraged, you know, that they knew they were down there and they were alive, at least some of them. But we had no idea what kind of shape they were going to be in. It is undoubtedly good news but Joe prefers to keep a level head. Knowing that anyone's still alive down there is a long way from safety. For a start, no matter how fast they pump the water out, they can't slow it down. They were underground trying to set pumps and relocating electrical equipment, and as fast as they do that, the water would overcome it. So we knew we weren't gonna stop the water. You feel that elation, there's no question, you know, okay, we have live miners down there, but when I called the command center and I said, is it slowing down any, they said no. It isn't just the water that's the problem. When the drill pushed into the mine, Joe took an air reading and was shocked by what he found. We were getting very low oxygen readings. I think at 13% oxygen. The air in our atmosphere contains approximately 21% oxygen. Even a drop of just a few percent can be fatal. So not only were we getting the water from the old mine, we were getting bad air from the old mine. Joe and his team estimate they have roughly an hour before any survivors will either suffocate or drown. But the nearest 30-inch drill they can source, the size they need to make a hole big enough for a rescue capsule, is located a good 12 hours drive away. Unless they can stop the water, there is nothing they can do. Then, Joe has an idea. I asked, can we create an air pocket? Some of the engineers there said, in theory, we can. I said, well, does anybody else have a better idea? The idea was to use the narrow borehole they had already made to blast as much air back down into the mine as possible to create an air pocket. If it works, it will hold back water and pump oxygen into the mine shaft at the same time. Never been done before in the US, it is fraught with potential dangers. But maybe 
Just maybe, if it holds long enough, it will buy the time they need to get the water levels low enough to attempt a rescue. We didn't have a whole lot of options. The water's rising. The only option we had was to try to create the air pocket. Keep that air in the mine. Keep that air pumping. Joe's team blast air down into the shaft. And for the next few hours, as water continues pouring into Kew Creek, someone continues to bang on the six-inch drill bit. And uh, so after that, it was a waiting game. All night, as the team wait for the bigger drill to arrive, the banging on the six-inch drill continues. The air pocket holds firm, and more and more pumps are set up to suck the water out. But late the following morning, the banging stops. You know, about 11.30 that Thursday a.m., Uh, was the last time we heard him beat on the steel. There were many reasons why the banging might have stopped, but Joe refuses to dwell on it. Instead, it only serves to fire him and the rescuers up even more to get down there. Because for everyone, this is more than just nine men trapped down a mine. This is family. When you work in a mine, you become very close with your crew members. And you develop a camaraderie and a friendship with them. And when something occurs like this, you want to try to help your fellow miner out. I felt bad for the people that had to talk to us because they were pretty emotional, you know, about the guys being down there. Anytime anyone would come, they always apologized. I'm sorry we don't know more. But without communications with them, down in the mine, it was hard to know what was going on. It's been 24 hours since the mine was breached and seven since the banging on the drill stopped. The main rescue drill finally arrives on site. With the rescue drill in place, the team can finally begin the arduous task of drilling the rescue hole. The six-inch borehole was a piece of cake by comparison. Now, they will need to carve an almost three-foot wide hole through hundreds of feet of rock and earth. Even if everything goes to plan, it will still take them at least 12 hours just to break through to the mine. They pulled in there and got set up and we were able to start drilling about 6.30. About the same time, uh, the governor flew into Somerset Airport. The governor of Pennsylvania is Mark Schweiker. Joe fills him in on everything that had happened so far. I explained to him, you know, what had happened and the plans that we had put into place. He says, Joe, do we have live miners down there? And I said, well, governor, I was there. I heard him beat on the steel. I don't know if we have nine, but there were definitely live miners down there. And I said, if our ear pocket theory works, we can rescue some miners. He said, Joe, do you really believe that? And I said, Governor, I don't have any reason not to believe it. 
He looked at me and said, well, then this is a rescue. I don't want to hear the word recovery. He said, you get them miners out. I'll take care of the red tape. With all the hands quite literally on the pumps, the 30-inch drill was started up and was soon chewing through the earth on its way down towards the mine shaft. Over the next few hours, the country's media flocked to the site, and soon, people all over the world are gripped by the story unfolding in Somerset County. As word gets around, more and more help arrives at the rescue site too. When fuel runs low, more fuel is brought in. When a worker gets tired, another comes in to pick up the reins. Bill Arnold and his family open their farm to everyone and anyone who needs it. And if it's food and water that people need, it is all covered. We had McDonald's and we had Papa John's Pizza and and we had Burger King literally just sending boxes of food out. Truck would stop off and drop off Pepsi. A donut placed in Pittsburgh brought donuts, pizza. I mean, everybody was bringing food. My next door neighbor made 14 meatloafs and took them all to the fire hall so that the hundreds of family members that were at the fire hall would have something home cooked that if they could eat during this stressful time, that they would have a home cooked meal. So not just my family, but everyone in the community kind of stepped up and said, we're gonna do whatever it takes. I'd like to say, while the community came together on the surface, I can only imagine what it might've been like for the miners deep underground. They are of this community, so would have trusted the family, friends, and fellow miners up top would be working tirelessly to get them out. In my mind, I imagine them huddled together to keep warm as they remind each other that help is on the way. Their goal, plain and simple, Stay together, stay alive. That's heroism too. For the rescue team, there is a cautious air of optimism at the site as the rescue drill continues on its way down to the mine shaft, hitting first 50 feet, then 75 feet, then 100 feet. And then, with the drill almost halfway there, tragedy strikes. At 1.30 in the morning, we were down a hundred and little over a hundred feet. And uh, the bit, uh, the drill bit broke. The bottom of the drill has snapped off and is wedged tightly into the hole. It stopped us in our tracks. What was going very, very smoothly, now had come to a screeching halt. The drillers told us that sometimes it takes days or weeks to get a broken drill bit out of a shaft, and sometimes they never do recover that drill bit. They have to abandon that shaft and begin a a new drill site at some other location. Though they have heard nothing from anyone in the mine for over 12 hours, just knowing that the rescuers are getting closer to breaking through is enough to give the families hope. When the drill bit breaks, 
For many of them, the terrifying truth about what has occurred down there and just how little chance the miners have comes rushing in. Some of the wives and girlfriends were so emotional, they were beside themselves and screaming and crying. Some would just sit in a corner. There was some that went just berserk. The fact that the drill bit broke was really hard on the families. Now nothing's being done to drill the rescue hole. Joe's first decision is to have a new drill team begin work on a second rescue hole. If nothing else, it at least gives the families the sense that something is still being done. But it will take about 10 hours before that team can make it through to the mine. In the meantime, a company from nearby Jefferson County takes on the task of building an extraction tool to help pull the broken drill bit out, a job that usually took days. And all the while, the water is continuing to rise. The fate of the survivors, if they are still alive, is hanging by a thread. They would ask, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? I was trying to keep a positive spin on things. And, you know, you can't sugarcoat anything. You got to tell it like it is, whether we're successful. It's going to be up to the man upstairs. Sue and the others can only hope and pray that they'll see their loved ones again. I can't remember what went through my... I'm sure many things went through my mind. Like, what am I going to do without him? (laughs) You know, and I tried not to think that way. And um, I don't know. Even with the best will in the world, it is clear to everyone that time is running out. Will Joe and his team beat the odds and make it into the mine? Will anyone still be alive down there to tell the tale? And I can remember he was squeezing his headphones tight against his ears, and he was speaking into the microphone, and he kept saying, can you hear me, guys? Can you hear me now? We're in the mine. Can you hear me? Please answer me. Join us next time for the concluding part of Rescue, Episode 1 one summer's day to find out. You've been listening to Rescue with Donnie Dust. Rescue is a Sony Music Entertainment production. Thanks to all the contributors for sharing their story with us. Rescue is produced by Richard McLean Smith. The executive producer is Louisa Field. The junior producer is Martha Miller. Scoring and sound design by Gulliver Tickle. Music composed by Eleni Hassabas. The production coordinator is Lily Hambly. The production manager is Kat Moran. Thanks to Jez Nelson, Chris Skinner, and Julia Stevenson. If you like this podcast, then do check out other Sony podcasts.